Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Gescos, and this week I got to talk to a former MLB player, World Series champion, and even more importantly, a Cape Cod Baseball League champion, Jared Saltalamacchia. Now, Jared and I would always chat before and after Braves games, but this is our first in-depth conversation. We talked about his daughters, coaching, his love for paranormal activity, and obviously his extraordinary MLB career. I apologize in advance for the audio issues. Don't hate me for it, but I don't want to spoil anything more. So ladies and gentlemen, Jared Saltalamacchia. Welcome, Jared Saltalamacchia. Thank you so much for coming on in or having us to your house. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Let's get started. You have four daughters, and you told me quite the interesting way you like to wake them up first thing in the morning. Do you want to tell us about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's my kids kind of take after me, so everything's a competition. And, um, you know, my youngest when she was born, or my oldest when she was born, we were really close. And then 11 months later, uh, my second came, Hunter, and, you know, I didn't kind of mess with the relationship, but it was uh, definitely a competition. Um, but then when you add a third one, it starts to be a, a more of a competition and me going everywhere and I was playing still. Um, but then my last one came along and I guess at that point, my older two were kind of over dad. They just wanted to move on with their lives and, you know, I wasn't cool anymore. Um, you know, so me and, me and Charlie had always been really, really close. And, uh, you know, so they started giving me crap saying, oh, well, you know, she's your favorite and this and that. I said, well, you know, every time I ask her to do something, she does it. She tells me she loves me, gives me hugs. You know, I said, so listen, every morning you got an opportunity to be my favorite. I said, it's not my fault. You guys screw it up. And she wins every morning. So uh, they have an opportunity to be my favorite, but Chuck wins every day. What goes into being the favorite? With girls, which I'm sure you guys know about, it's uh, really hectic in the morning. Bathroom time is very important. I guess clothes is becoming more important. Everyone wears (laughs) each other's clothes and they get pissed off at each other and yell. So uh, it just triggers me. As soon as they start yelling and screaming and Chuck's just sitting there enjoying her life. And I'm like, you're my favorite. Get over here. (laughs) Let's go somewhere. Go to breakfast. Get away from this craziness. Is there ever a jealousy within the house with all of them or no? They don't care. Oh, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) They they are extremely, extremely jealous. They want my attention. And, um, you know, I was gone for 17 years. So this is like, this is huge for them. They got dad home now. They want to spend time with him. They want to do something you know, want that affirmation. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a huge fight every morning and, um, you know, Charlie usually wins. They play all four play volleyball, correct? Uh, the older two do, um, my third one, Sloan is a dancer. And then, like I said, Charlie's my personal assistant slash friend. Do you ever find yourself becoming that kind of crazy dad in the stands, coaching them from the side? Or are you more laid back, hands off? No, I'm definitely more laid back. I mean, my wife played volleyball in college, so she's more knowledgeable. But it's like any kid, they don't pay attention to their parents. They don't know anything. So, you know, we, we kind of stand. We've been in this this world where it's really highly competitive. So it's like, you know, we just want the kids to enjoy it. You know, 17 years away from my kids, is it's tough. So seeing them smile on the court and just have fun and being competitive is enough for me. I don't need to be the dad over there screaming, yelling at the ref and the coaches. It's like, just let the kids play. I mean, dance involves a lot of hair, a lot of hair and makeup, (laughs) and you have quite the hair yourself. What would it take for the man bun to be chopped off? Ooh, uh, yeah, that's tough. I I don't know. I mean, I I just kind of, I've actually been growing it since like 2000. 15 or 16 yeah I mean I'll trim it here and there but I just 
I'm not a big haircut guy. I'm not a big, you know, shaving, grooming guy. It's just like, hey, this is what you get, you know. And um, so it, w- it would take a lot, you know. I thought about it after the World Series when they everyone shaved their beard for, you know, a good cause, cancer awareness or whatever, you know. So I would do it for that 100%, but um, hadn't been asked that yet. If Bourne wins back-to-back, would that do it for you? That would not do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> as much as I want to, I know I'd. I've had it so long now, and uh, yeah, I'm going to keep it for a while. How long is it? Where does it hit? Like your uh, Probably mid-back. Mid-back? Yeah. it's When it's long, it'll or when it's wet, it'll get mid-back, but I got that afro, so it doesn't get too long. You started growing out in 2015, you said? Yeah. I mean, I, I grew it out for my whole career, but there was times where you know I'm in a slump, and I would just shave it completely off. So I think 2015 is the last time I did that when I was with Arizona. So you're superstitious. Oh, yeah. Every baseball player, athlete, superstitious in some way. No, really. Some of the guys you talk to don't have that a lot of superstition. They don't, they're they're stitious, but not super, as one of them would say, or some of them would say. So how are you superstitious? What's your routine? I don't even know what that means. They're stitious, but not, not superstitious? Super. They have like things, but they're not ride or die. Uh, every player has something. Whether it's a routine, that's a superstition in my, in my book. You know, it's something you do every day. Um, whether it's to prepare or whether it's just because you're so used to doing it and you feel like it's going to help you out. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, I was never like ride or die. I had to wear the same socks, dirty, that type of thing. But, um, you know, I had the same sandwich every time I played, um, you know, during the high school season when I'm coaching, I'll eat the same you know place every day. Um, but it's just, you know, habit, I guess. What's the sandwich? Uh, so it was peanut butter and banana sandwich when I played. I was on so much Adderall and, you know, all that stuff that I could never eat and gain weight. So I lost a lot of weight. So the you know, nutrition lady told me if I had some protein or some uh, peanut butter, that would help. That's the Elvis sandwich, right? Yeah, I didn't fry it, though. Didn't fry it. Just straight peanut butter, banana sandwich, go out there, Red Bull and 70, 80 milligrams of Adderall. <laughs> Sounds like quite the combo. Yes. Sounds quite the <laughs> recipe for success. So at the beginning of the career, at your career, did you expect to stay in Atlanta long or did you kind of have a feeling you were going to get traded pretty quickly? You know, I mean, I was hoping. I was always a Braves fan growing up. I mean, their spring training complex was right near my home, so in West Palm. So I always wanted to be there. And that's like me and my wife were looking at places to live there. And, and um, you know, so that was always the goal. You know, I, I didn't think I was going to get traded right away, but there were some talks the year I did get traded. Um, then ultimately it happened. You know, you you play this game wanting to start and finish where you, you know, start finish where you started and, you know, just didn't happen. I realized it's a business and you're going to move around everywhere as long as my family's taken care of. Um, so, yeah. Was that a quick realization for you that this is a business? Not really, not a lot of loyalty? Yeah, it's it's tough, you know. I mean, that was my home. It was uh, they drafted me, they signed my brother, so he was with me. So they really took care of me, kind of groomed me. Um, you know, when I got called up, Shipper was like, you know, a guy I grew up looking up, idolizing that type of thing. So when he told me to grab a first base glove just so I can stay up there, I was like, man, this is awesome, like a dream come true. Um, but I knew there was other catchers there. I mean, Brian McCann was a starter, so if I wanted to further my career, I needed to go somewhere. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a wake-up call, but I still didn't think much of it. And then when I was in Texas and then that whole trade went down, that's when I knew, all right, it's a business. Um, I was really hoping to stay in Boston forever. You know, obviously, free agent happened, and, you know, I wanted to sign back, and they just weren't willing to offer anything. That, that must have been tough, like <laughs> a tough realization for you to kind of come through. 
Yeah, that's when it really hit me more then because, you know, we had just come off winning a World Series and it's like, man, why don't we keep the team together? I wasn't asking for, you know, bukus of money. I just something fair. Um, and even the offer they gave me, I said, I'll, I'll do that, but let's just kind of restructure it to where if I go on the DL for, you know, the back injury or something, then, you know, the whatever doesn't kick in. Um, but they were just, they kind of moved on. I'm sorry, they must have been very tough. I don't mean to like rehash the bat, any, anything no, bad. I'm fine with it. It's, uh, you know, it ultimately helped me go to Miami, be close to my family. It set me up for life, you know, three-year deal there. So I was I was happy, um, you know, and it was understanding. It's just, you know, a game. You're going out there and you get to play a game every single day and you get paid to do it. We're going to focus a lot on Boston, obviously, because you won a World Series there. Um, that must have been the major highlight of your time in Boston, winning in 2013. Yeah, I mean, you know, the first day when I got traded over, um, that was like, I mean, like I was at the circus. I was at Disney World. Just you look around the clubhouse and every single guy in every locker has been an all-star or future Hall of Famer. And, um, you know, just being a part of that was just surreal. Um, walking into Fenway Park as a visitor, I was just in awe. And then actually being able to put the Red Sox uniform on, you know, having that crowd behind you every single, even on the road games. I mean, it was like a home game for us. So um, it was just a, a whole different experience that I've never had before. Um, and walking into a club where it's like we're expected to win. Every guy in the clubhouse was thinking the same thing. Nobody was like, oh, let's just get through the season or, you know, hey, maybe we'll make the play. No, we expected to get there and win. Was there a moment or a story that you, when you knew that that 2013 team was special? Was it after the bombing? Did that bring you guys closer? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that definitely did, more the city um, than the players. I mean, we were pretty close coming into spring training. Um, a lot of new faces, but guys we knew had experience and, and knew how to win. Um, but, you know, I think you know Johnny Gomes and uh, Napoli and those guys in spring training saying, hey, we, we already won. You know, this is it. This is We're going to win this. Just plus pl press play and let's just ride it out, you know. Um, having that mentality from day one was huge. Um, our coaching staff was phenomenal. They kind of stayed out of the way and let us do our thing. Um, you know, then bombing happened. Um, it was obviously very, very sad, but it was just so awesome to see the city just kind of rally around us. And they always say, thank us for it. But, I mean, honestly, we thank them every single day because, you know, that could have gone south quick. I mean, we could have just sat there and, and dragged our feet saying, man, this is just a terrible scenario. So many families and lives were affected and, you know, um, you know this is just not our year and gone to a negative mindset. But no, the city was like, listen, do this for us. And um, it just kind of changed our mentality. And we were just so, you know, blessed to be able to win it for them. But you knew early on that this was a special group. Did it, did, was there ever a lull? Were you ever nervous at all or no? No, it was it was so such a strange season. I mean, like, we don't think we lost more than, you know, one or two games in a row. I mean, if we lost one, we knew the next day we were going to come back and win and we'd run, you know, 10, 12 game win streak and then we'd lose one. And, um, you know, it was just every day a new player would step up for us, one through nine, you know, guys in the bullpen, our starting rotation. Then we got PV over, um, which was just a, a great culture building uh, trade for us. Um, it, it was just I've never had more fun in my life playing the game of baseball, even though we were winning, but just with the group of guys we had. Let's flash forward to playoffs. <clears throat> you had that amazing game two walk off. Do you remember that moment <clears throat> uh, or did you kind of black out? No, I definitely remember it. I mean, you know, obviously without David Ortiz hitting the grand slam, we wouldn't be there. Um, you know, I, I just to go back, I was 
watching Oakland play Detroit, and we were all in the clubhouse watching it. We had already kind of clinched, and we were just waiting to see who we were going to play. And, you know, as a catcher, I'm looking at the hitters. I'm like, all right, you know, I can call a good game. And then Oakland was the unknown. They had all rookies. You didn't really have a scouting report on them. So I really wanted to play Detroit, even though they had five studs in the rotation. Um, you know, I still felt we had a better chance against them. So when we got them, you know, I was pumped and excited. You know, obviously got Scherzer and uh, Verlander going out there uh, throwing gems. So if we can get to their bullpen, we knew we had a chance. Um, so once David hit the home run, Johnny gets on first. Uh, they give me the hit and run. And I'm like, all right, I love hit and run. It's so easy. I just got to make contact. No big deal. And I pop it up to first base. And I'm like, oh, my God, you got to be kidding me. The one thing I'm good at, and I screwed it up. And, uh, you know, thankfully Prince runs over to the foul line and just gets tangled up and misses it. Um, you know, and then Johnny gets the second, pass ball, he gets the third. And, I mean, I've always felt it was very easy to get a guy in from third, you know, especially with a guy on the mound that throws a lot of fastballs, sinkers into my bat. Um, you know, so I felt pretty confident going into that, and it was just a surreal moment. And, um, you know, I give my wife crap all the time because I think she was at home in bed sleeping game two of the ALCS and she's like "Ah, I'm I'm ready to go home so she's like I knew something happened because I heard the cracks we lived right across the street she's like I heard something happen and so I just had a feeling it was you and I said well yeah it would have been nice if you were there (laughs) but yeah it was me that was probably one of the biggest moments of your career too yeah yeah, and she missed it yeah she missed it she was at home with the kids and you know in bed sleeping (laughs) <laughs> rough life rough life oh yeah. my god but when everyone was running out of the bullpen and out of the dugout like what was just going through your head were you in shock were you in awe like what was just do you remember yeah I mean I definitely remember I was definitely you know I was pumped up I felt like I was walking on on cloud but it's um you know you you go through the whole season where Johnny Gomes punts a helmet you know Napoli has a great celebration David Ortiz you know so I wanted to do something cool, and I'm, like, right on first base, and I remember looking back and seeing everybody thinking, all right, what's cooler than, I guess, a catcher that can't run outrunning everybody? <laughs> and I just kept running, you know, and then next thing you know, they catch me in center field, and, you know, I remember David Ortiz coming up to me after all that and, like, handing me the game ball. Like, for a guy like him who's done what he's done in this game to think about going to getting the ball out in left field and bringing it to me, like, that was a pretty special moment. Is that next to the World Series ring? Uh, it's definitely, I've moved twice now since we've, you know, had that. So it's somewhere in the house. I don't know where, but I've got it somewhere. Well, you came to the Red Sox, uh, on the re- replacing Jason Veritek. What can he kind of amplified or exemplified the grit and leadership of the Red Sox? What did you do to kind of take over that role? And how did you keep that going? Uh, I mean, those are tough shoes to fill. I mean, he was a guy that I grew up idolizing, watching, and I wanted to be like him as a catcher. Um, him and Jason Kendall, they had that hard-nosed, grit attitude where they were just more worried about the pitcher and focusing on that and winning than they were themselves and, and getting hits and homers and stuff like that. So um, when I got traded over and he was, it was me, him, the first year was me, him, uh, Victor Martinez, and um, Kevin Cash. And um, obviously, Veritek was hurt. Uh, Victor was actually hurt at the time, too, going into free agency. So it was really me and Cashy. Um, you know, so that was a cool experience. And then the next year, knowing that I was going to be the starter and he was the backup, like, I didn't know how to take it. I was like, dude, this is your team. He's like, nope. He said, it's your team. I'm here to help you any way you can. Um, just completely humble and, you know, basically handed over the reins to me. And, you know, I think it helped because a lot of the pitchers saw that. So they started to trust me a little bit. 
Um, but I mean, still to this day, I'll, I'll call him and with questions, you know, he's always been a huge part of my, uh, career in my life. What makes a good catcher in your opinion? Um, you know, I think, um, being humble, I think, you know, um, selflessness is, is huge. Um, I don't know as much now as it was when I was playing. Um, but it's just, you know, showing that your, your pitchers that you care more about them than yourself. You know, because ultimately you're only going to go as far as your pitcher. So if you can show them that you care and you're working for them, it makes them better, which makes the team better. Um, so I would say, like, selflessness for sure is the number one. What do you think was the most underrated part of your game? Um, I think that aspect of it, you know. I mean, everyone kind of labeled me as a switch hitting catcher. You know, I was never, like, catcher first. It's like, oh, this guy can hit. We need him. I mean, he can hit. He can hit. And I never really focused on hitting. I could care less. It was – Whatever I can do to help the team is what I was trying to do, but I wanted to make sure that if we lost the game, it wasn't because I wasn't prepared. You know, I prepared. I got to the field at noon every day. I would go through scattering reports. I would talk to each pitcher, what they were doing. I would go down for their bullpens. I would catch them. Um, you know, so I always did everything I could to make them better, and I realized it's their career too, you know. So I wanted to – I wanted to, if that guy had a great year and got paid the next year, I felt like I did my job, you know, so – that, I think, was underrated. Everyone kind of viewed me as offensive-minded. So the selflessness that you have yeah. or you had is still very much of what you take away from that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what makes a, a good culture team and a winning team is every guy on that team pulling for each other. You know, I mean, you know, I talked to all these young guys and the college guys like, hey, you know, when you get a hit, if you can get to second base, get to second. I said, because ultimately that guy on deck gets a hit and you score for him – you hope he does the same for you because when it starts to count and you start getting paid for those numbers, that's important. It's a huge deal. And I feel like you just said at the combine that everyone wants to do catcher things or catcher stuff until it's time <laughs> to do catcher things and catcher stuff. So, like, what were you saying by that? What is catcher stuff? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you got to want to catch. I mean, you can't just throw somebody behind. You can put, you know, third baseman at first, a short shortstop at first, put him in the outfield. I mean, there's not a lot into it, but to be a catcher, you've got to want to have a 97 minor fastball skip, you know, hitching the leg or, you know, a guy foul. I mean, I've had many concussions in my career that, you know, could have ended some guys' careers. And, you know, thankfully I was able to overcome it. But I mean, like, nobody just sits there and wakes up one day and says, oh, I want to get the crap beat out of me and, you know, wake up the next day and do it all over again. Um, you know, we're seeing it here in, in the Cape where, you know, we've got a couple guys that have gotten hurt. Um, you know, it's a very demanding position and you've got to be able to do it every single day. Uh, there's no days off. So, um, that's what I mean by that. you like, everyone wants to be a catcher until it's time to start doing catcher stuff. Hey, what's that leg routine like, or the mobility that you had to go through? <laughs> um, you know, so off season program is very important for catchers because during the season, you don't get that opportunity. So, you know, two weeks off after the season, hit the gym, you're there, you know, two hours or three hours a day. Uh, lower body stretch flexibility um, you know get your upper body stuff in too and then spring training is just like working out all over again you got to get your legs in shape to catch you know tons of bullpens and you know you play 162 games catching nine innings sometimes longer um, you got to count spring training into that so I mean you're at to you know 180 190 games a year um, with a two-week recovery process what was your workout routine when you catch you caught um, excuse me so during the season, I would do like maybe two workouts a week, and it wasn't a lot of lower body. I did um, like 
hamstrings and core because I had some lower back issues. So I had to try and keep my hips aligned. So a lot of hamstring and core, um, a little bit upper body, and then, you know, a lot of stretching and, you know, recovery. You know, we were on the training table pretty much every day getting massages and anything we can to, to get the muscles going. How tall are you? 6'4". So it's a long way down. It's a long way down, but I actually I feel more comfortable in the crouch than I do, you know, standing up. Really? Yeah, you do it for so long. I mean, your your quads get so, you know, uh, so much work and so tight that you kind of start hunching forward a little bit. And, you know, then standing up straight kind of kills your back. So you're like, All right, I got to crouch down for a little bit. Can you touch your toes? Absolutely. Really? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to show you, but yeah. I, can. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I might, have, I might have to have you prove it at the very end. I might have to see this. But you even said um, everything about coaching, and the most important thing about coaching is the coaching stance. Yeah, absolutely. You got to have a power stance. I mean, the head coach has a better power stance than everyone else, you know, because that's the guy that's seen 24 7. Um, I feel like you have to have a really good walk to the, to the mound, you know, if you're changing pitchers. Um, and you got to be able to chirp, you know, you got to chirp the umpire and other players and try and, uh, you know, keep things light and fun. Have you been tossed yet this season? No, I, I found out last night, though, that if an assistant coach gets thrown out, it's like a two game suspension. So <laughs> I was telling Scott, like, man, you could have told me that earlier in the year. And I <laughs> had a two day vacation while I'm in the Cape. Now it's a little late. What would you say? If that, well, don't swear, but <laughs> like, what's the best chirp that you can have that you have in your back pocket that you uh, can say? You know, I mean, being a head coach at the high school level, it's, you know, you don't get a chance to get thrown out there either because if you do, it's like a $1,000 fine and like two, three-game suspension. So Got to save your money. Yeah, I haven't had an opportunity to really get tossed. I mean, as a player, I did a couple times. But, um, you know, I think that you're not going to change an umpire's mind. No matter what you do, you're not going to change it. So it's really just kind of a mute point to go out there and scream and yell over, over nothing. Um, so if I were to get tossed, I'd probably go out there and just start screaming, you know, about fishing and hunting and, you know, <laughs> let the crowd think that I'm really yelling at him, but I'm not. And <laughs> that way it's a win-win. He doesn't get upset and cry and, you know, I don't say anything that I'm going to regret. You've seen umpires cry? Yeah, I'm sure they do. They're human. <laughs> um, we've seen a bunch of former athletes either follow the broadcasting route or the coaching route. You've kind of done both so far. So do you have a favorite? Uh, I mean, I love coaching. I love being in the dugout with the guys, you know, grinding, playing the chess match. Um, I did enjoy being in the booth. It was something that, you know, I always felt like when I retired, I wanted to be able to give the players a voice. I didn't want to go in the booth and just start bashing guys because I do know how hard the game is. So that was my goal. Uh, whether I did that or not, I don't know. But, um, yeah, I did enjoy it. But if I had my choice, I'd definitely rather be in the dugout. How are your skills been? Tra- how have your skills been transferable from playing to now coaching? You know, it's it's tough because um, you're not in the game anymore. And the more you're out of the game, I think the players, they do respect you. Um, but it's still, they it's it's a tough game, you know. So, I mean, they you can tell them to your blue in the face, listen, man, just get your head out, get the head out, get your hands through the zone, and they don't understand it. So you got to find ways that it, it ticks with them. Um, I remember a couple of years ago in high school, I was coaching kids, and I did a TikTok because that's all they really listen to or watch anyway. So it's like I can talk to them for 45 seconds or 10 minutes, and they're not going to get anything out of it. Um, so I was like, all right, let me make this fun for them. So I did a TikTok. My kids helped me and sent it to them, and it just worked. So, like, there's so many different personalities, and there's guys that are really high motor and some are low motor. And getting to know those personalities, and, and you know, that was kind of the catching aspect of it. You know, I always had different personalities to deal with. And so I think that's been the toughest transition. Um 
but I think the best thing I bring to it is I do understand the game's hard and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help them and find different ways. How do you develop your catchers? Slowly. I mean, the game's evolved, so it's a little different. Catching now, the one knee thing is huge, so these guys are really valued on that low strike. Um, so I'm constantly learning on how to help them with that. Different body types, you know, obviously help that. Shorter catchers, it's easier. Taller catchers, it's a little tougher. Um, you know, but it's just kind of routine. They've got to be very routine oriented. They've got to be um, very disciplined um, and understand that's a process. We I actually talked to a couple of your current players about you. All good uh, things. They all said that you've been one of their favorite coaches they've ever had. Well, that's good. All right. <laughs> Why do you think that is? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> do you think it's the relate the um, able to relate? You know, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, I just try and. I care about everybody I coach, whether it's for a day or for, you know, 10 years. I really do care. I invest everything I got into them. So hopefully maybe that's why, um, you know, I think there is a little bit of an aspect of what I've done in the game, you know, so I think they respect that. And, you know, they've learned a lot that they probably haven't learned at the D1 level. Um, you know, so I, I think that they're seeing a guy who's done what he's done in the game, willing to come out here for no money and, and coach him and help him, you know, further their career. What's one lesson that you learned when you were younger, whether it was your youth days or in high school or college that you have now passed on to your players? So Jason Veritek uh, really helped me because I was, you know, obviously stepping in for him. I was in, you know, Fenway every day, you know, unbelievable organization. So I tried to do too much. And he said, listen, you got to control what you can control. So once he said that, that just clicked with me. I was like, you know, I'm sitting here trying to be this everything. I'm trying to be the best catcher in the world, the best hitter in the world, the best, you know, communicator in the world, best, you know, coachable player. Um, all the things that, you know, didn't help me focus on what I needed to do and be the best player I could be. Um, so that's what I passed along to all these guys. Like, hey, you know, you're you're a little guy. You're not a home run hitter. You've got some pop, but use what you've got, you know, control what you, you can only control your approach at the plate. And, you know, if he doesn't give you anything inside to hit for a home run, you're not, you don't try, like stay out over the plate, just shoot it the other way. You're going to get your shot, you know, but just take what he gives you. Um, and same thing in the catching aspect, you know, you can't throw every guy out. If the pitcher's a one six to home, you probably don't have a chance to throw him out. If you can just put it on the bag, which you can control, then, you know, more times than not, you're going to be successful. How is it different coaching high school versus coaching on the Cape? Um, you know, I think the maturity level is a lot different. The size, the strength is a lot different. Um, you know, I think the competitive nature is definitely a lot different. I mean, these kids are, you know, on television every night and they're, you know, one step away from getting drafted. So um, not only do they have more time to work out, they're not playing in 15, 20 tournaments in the summer. You know, so they've got time for their bodies to recover. Um, the teaching aspect is going to be different because they're stronger and capable to do more. Um, you know, and they're just, they're more athletic. Out of the three catchers you have now, you have Derek Bender, you have Hugh Pickney, and you have Caden Bodine. Mm -hmm. Out of those three, which one reminds you the most of you? Um, In personality or skill set? Uh, I think... Hugh reminds uh, reminds me of myself a lot just because he's a taller guy. Um, so a lot of the issues he has is what I had to deal with. 
Um, it's tough for tall guys to, you know, come out of a crouch and make the throws a second and stay low. So uh, the blocking aspect, obviously, too, you got a lot of, you know, legs and arms. You got to get get moving. Um, he's not as big as I was, but he's definitely a lot closer. Um, so I would say that's probably a pretty good comparison. How hard was it to get you're in this like deep spot, need to pop up? How like how hard was that? It, that was the off season program. I mean, you just do nothing but legs and squats, and you know you're really trying to, you know, strengthen your legs up as much as possible to to endure a whole 162 games, but you know at the highest level. So um, it wasn't easy. I had to make a lot of different adjustments. Um, thankfully, I was blessed with some athleticism that I was able to you know, carry a long way, but, um, you know, it's just a constant grind and work. You're never taking a day off. What is your favorite thing about coaching on the Cape? On the Cape? This um, is your second year. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think coming back to the house here and, and talking with the coaches and just, you know, we're all here for the same reason. We want to obviously win, but we want to further these kids career and make them better than when they got here. Um, so at the end of the season, whenever we leave and we see those guys go and we know that we did the, our job, you know, that's definitely a, a, you know, pat on the back, uh, fulfilling, you know, um, feeling, but seeing them perform during the season and watching them grow, you know, Matt Shaw last year, you know, he was uh, a little hard headed, but he was very, very good and had an unbelievable year, which, you know, at times can make it a little tougher because the guy's successful so, I mean, he's like, well, I've had success doing what I'm doing. Why should I listen to you? But he didn't do that. You know, he took what we got, and he was better because of it, and he got drafted high, and he's going to have an opportunity to play in the big leagues. So, you know, I think the memories and the relationships you make along the way is definitely the most memorable. What's been the biggest difference from year one to year two? Uh, well, year one, you won. So <laughs> year two, you got to win again, you know, so that's that's tough. Um it's always tough getting a new set of players and, and, you know, kind of doing it all over again because most of these guys, it's the same thing that you're trying to teach them. Um, so, you know, just getting to know those personalities again. And I, I can say this year's team is definitely different from last year personality-wise, um, athleticism-wise, some better, some, you know, not better. So it's um, it's just trying to earn that trust all over again. That's always it takes time and everybody's different. Some's a week, some's a day, some's you know, the whole time. What do you want to be remembered for as a coach? Um I mean I, I don't want to be remembered per se. I, I just want, you know, I want to help these kids get to where they want to go. You know, so if these kids look back and say, you know, I got where I'm at because of him, you know, I know that's not true, but that would be, you know, a great feeling. Um, you know, I just want all these kids to get something out of it. Like I said, get better than they were when they got here. Where do you want to be in five years? Like, where do you see Jared Saltalamachia? Uh, I would love to be seen um, at the D1 level at, at a Power 5 school or even a school that's not a Power 5 and we're turning him into a Power 5 school. So um, I think I've kind of made my decision. I would like to be at the college level. Um, I think I could benefit those guys a lot more than at the pro level. Um, so hopefully in five years, I've been with a college for three years or so. <laughs> would you want to go back to Florida State? I would love to. Yeah. I mean, I would love to Florida State because it's in Florida. I know that area well. Um, it was a school that I was supposed to go to, so I would love to be there. But, you know, I don't have any uh, bias on any school. You know, I just want to go and help these kids get better and um, have a winning program. 
So you've had the longest last name in the MLB for years. And there's this new guy that kind of came in with the hyphenated. Yeah. Would you count that? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's cheating. Uh, D. Gordon tried to do it. That's cheating. Uh, you know, if you're going to have it, it's got to be legit. No hyphen. No, you know, second name added in there. Just, just let's get your last name on there. Have people butchered the last name? Absolutely. What's the weirdest pronunciation you've heard? Um, so, I mean, I've heard it all. I mean, people forget the L with the Saltalamachia, so it's Saltamachia, uh, Saltamachia. I've heard, you know, people call me Chia Pet, um, because <laughs> of my hair and the name. <laughs> so when I was in A-ball, um, Braves organizational rule was you had to show six inches of sock. Well, that looks terrible. Not anymore, because kids love the mid look, I guess. But so I wore my pants up. And, you know, I wasn't a little guy, so you, you got this big, long last name on a big guy with his pants up. And um, so I was on deck, and this guy was just wearing me out. And I was like, all right, you know, enough's enough. I, I turned around, looked at him, and you know, I was like, all right, you know, you got what, what else you got? And he goes, well, if you put your name on your ass, it'll fit better. I said, you know what, that's the best best line I've ever heard. You know, it was just it was spot on funny, and I was just like, all right, you win. You win. Yeah. Um, what was the most memorable moment of your career? Um, you know, obviously winning a, a World Series. You know, that's the pinnacle. That's what you're always trying to do and accomplish. Um, I would say getting called up to the big leagues with Atlanta was another one. You know, walking into a clubhouse with Smoltz, Chipper, Andrew Jones, guys I grew up watching. Um, you know, so I would say those those two for sure, and then being able to share the World Series with my uh, family you have let me, let me get this right you have been with seven different organizations you've been with the atlanta braves texas rangers red sox marlins diamondbacks the tigers and the toronto blue jays rank those cities from your least favorite to favorite oh man um i would say least favorite um just because i didn't spend much time there I, when i was in miami i lived at home we talked about buying a place just so I can be close but you know the point of going home was to be we were the family so I woke up every morning take the kids to school um so I would say Miami is the least because I didn't get to really spend time in the city um do I have to go up from there or just least and favorite because Red Sox Boston was always my favorite uh Toronto was a cool city Arizona was a lot of fun I stayed right there in, in Scottsdale um but I was only there for you know four or five months um detroit i didn't stay in the city but it's a really cool stadium um i think that's it. atlanta i mean obviously i i still i've got a, a hunting ranch in um uh, cedar town which is about an hour north of atlanta so we go through atlanta all the time um so i've always been a, a georgia guy so i would say boston favorite miami least atlanta's probably up towards the favorite who had the craziest fans Craziest? Jeez. Uh, I mean, the best fans by far, obviously, Boston. Sports fans. Um, Arizona, we didn't get a good crowd. Miami, we didn't get a good crowd. Toronto fans are more hockey fans than anything. So, um, you know, I remember as a visiting player, we'd have people had to look up on Google about you just to be able to make fun of you because they didn't really know who anybody was. Um you know, and Detroit had a good a good crowd, so uh, yeah. Okay, 
I know you're really into paranormal activity. <laughs> Is that correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. Why? I don't, I don't know. My mom was always kind of into the, the cemetery thing and, and ghosts, and she used to tell me stories about, you know, when I was born, she just had a weird, uneasy feeling about, you know, me, and she remembers, like, waking up and walking into my room and seeing her grandmother standing over me, looking at her, saying everything's going to be all right. So I think that's where it started, and then, um, you know, just just went on from there and then i guess the story you're probably going to is you know when i was in tampa playing against the the rays um the hotel we stood i was haunted and there's been stories for years about it and uh you know so i always loved going there because of that and uh i remember laying in bed one night and it was like two in the morning and i knew i closed my door but for whatever reason i woke up and looked and the door was open and the latch was keeping the door open i was like that's strange nobody has anybody's keys there it's like you know i was on a different wing and everything and uh so i went up closed the door laid back down and then i just kind of looked over to the window and through the window you could see two people standing there a kid and a guy in a top hat i was like all right that's strange i heard a story about that Um, but they didn't say anything they were just standing there you know couldn't see their face just the shadow um and then there was time we got in at like two three in the morning from somewhere and you know, I'm walking down the hallway and everyone's on the other side. I'm on the, the haunted side and I saw some lady in a white dress walking and I'm like, that's a weird old dress. Like, why is some lady, maybe there's something going on, but not three in the morning. And uh, then I read about a lady that's been seen walking around in a white dress. So, yeah. That's wild. It's cool. I liked it. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. you're crazy. No, it's not crazy. I mean, they're not going to hurt you. It's, you know, what are they going to do? insidious any of those like scary movies that's that's movies you're talking about movies what is one question i haven't asked you yet that you think that i should uh well i mean you talked about the the hair thing with the daughters and um so my 12 year old danced competitively like she was really good and you know i always wanted to there was tournaments for volleyball that i would take the kids my wife would stay home um you know because she had to take care of one of the other kids so I had to take my daughter one time, and I had no clue to do hair. Like, I know how to oh, do no. hair, but not, like, that kind of hair. Um, so, you know, I had to have other people help me, but I've done my kids' hair since they were, you know, had long enough hair to do, braided, and all that stuff. For you can braid? Yeah. Like, I've done their hair up until they could do it themselves. My wife didn't want anything to do with it. She knew how to, but she's like, yeah, it's all you. So brush their hair, braid it, do different, you know, stuff like that. That's what kind of braids can you do? You can do fishtail, French, all of them. Nothing special. Just a regular regular braid. You know, when they were younger, we would just take the top portion of it, put it in a piggy tail, and then, you know, braid it back. Um, but now it's way, way more advanced. I can't do all that other stuff. What do you think makes you so good at what you do now and then what you did back in playing Major League Baseball? Um, well, I think... You know, when I was playing, the number one priority for me was to be prepared for everything. You know, if we lost the game, it wasn't because I wasn't prepared. So I think, you know, the de- paying attention to details was huge for me. I think that's what I brought to the table. Um, now, I think it's kind of the same thing, but the caring aspect. You know, I think a lot of coaches now are doing it for a paycheck. I don't need a paycheck. I'm doing it because I care and I want to make these kids better. Um, you know, so the knowledge that I had... I think the contacts I had, we had a pitcher yesterday that wanted to learn how to throw a split, and he asked me if I knew anybody. And, you know, Ryan Dempster's a guy I played with, and I faced him, and he's 
a split guy, you know. So I was like, there's no better guy than him, and he loves helping guys out as well. So, you know, we had a Zoom call with him yesterday, helping Rice out and learn how to throw a split. What's the biggest difference from coaching and playing? Um, frustration. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, when you're playing, you kind of control some things, you know. You control what you're doing, and you're focused on, on you. Um, as a coach, you have to focus on the player, and you can't control everything. So, I mean, like I said before, we can tell them we're blue in the face, but if they don't trust it, it's tough to help them. So seeing a kid really struggle with that, and they, they just, in their mind, for whatever reason, they cannot, um, you know, trust it for whatever reason, it's frustrating. I want to help them out. I want them, you know, and I know that if they can just get that release and get it out of their mind and just go out there and play and trust their ability, they're going to be a lot better player. And, you know, being a psychologist is, is part of the gig, and it's tough to, to deal with that. Do you find your language has changed versus like how you talk to this generation versus how you talk to your teammates? Yeah, that was that was definitely one thing that I learned, you know, last year. You know, the lingo's different. Um, so what you say they don't understand, you know, and not everything but most of it. So it's like I gotta find a way that connects with these kids and, you know, I'm gotta check myself sometimes and, and you know, kind of go back to the drawing board and, and find ways and, you know, but I'm not a coach that changes everything about a kid. I want to see what he does well and just kind of make that better. So, you know, a lot of coaches will, will take a kid and say, hey, you, you can't hit like that. you got to put your bat down here, your hands down here, and it's like that doesn't work for them, you know. So what else can I do to make them better? Um, you know, so I, I just got to find different ways. I don't know anything specific, but, yeah, I've definitely found myself, you know, dumbing it down or learning new lingo that I didn't know before. Um, yeah, every day. What's the lingo? There's new stuff every day. Let's hear a few. What have you learned in the past year for lingo? I have no clue. Like, scooping a ball, like guys, in their mind, if they feel they're scooping the ball, it's actually staying behind. That, that means their hands are going to the ball first and the barrel's coming through, whereas us, it was staying inside the ball. Um, you know, so little stuff like that I don't know not that I'm cool and I learned the uh, the lit and all this stuff but um, yeah it's it's just it's just understanding how they process it and it's, they process it differently that's why you have social media right to keep up with <laughs> I have not learned anything on social media <laughs> really you said that you sent them TikToks uh, yeah but I haven't learned anything I mean I've learned about it but I haven't learned anything on Instagram or TikTok or any of that stuff. Fair enough. But usually we do a little social media segment at the very end. I told you we give the guys find their Twitters or old tweets, and you don't really have that. No. You're, you're pretty <laughs> off the grid, as one might say. So instead, I was thinking we could do a little tattoo tour. How many tattoos do you have? I haven't counted, but I'm sure it's in the 18 to 20 range. I've got all my kids' names and then, you know, like kind of what, you know, their personalities. So, like, my oldest was Flower. So, um, you know, we did Flowers for her. My other one, we call her Hootie. So, I did Owl Eyes. Um, Sloan was a dancer. She's always music and theater. So, we did some, you know, music notes and stars. And then Charlie, I didn't have room to put anything like I did with the other ones. So, I was really trying to find something. Um, you know, and she actually came up with the idea of, like, our thumbprints into a heart. So we took her thumbprint, my thumbprint, and made a heart. And, um, you know, so each one of them are special. I remember exactly where I got them, where I was at mentally and, you know, relationship-wise with them. 
Um, and then the other ones are just kind of some religious uh, tattoos. What's the heart right on your forearm? So that's the thumbprint. Oh, that's so, a thumbprint? Oh, wow. I knew yeah, it was makeup. It's hers <gasps> and mine. And uh, apparently fingerprints are tough to tattoo. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. Really detailed. Yeah. yeah. So it came out all right. It could have done better. I think I got to go touch it up a little bit. When will you know you've made it as a coach? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't really look at it as making it. You know, like I said, I want to help kids. Like, So every year my goal is to get all my high school kids that are seniors into college, whether it's a you know, good, you know, great academic college or it's a good athletic college, just want to get them into college. So, um, you know, if I can check all those boxes at the end of the year, I think I've, I've done my job and I've made it. Um, that's kind of my talk to all the parents at the beginning is, hey, my goal is to get your kid what they want. If they want to go to school, I'm going to try and do whatever I can. If they don't, that's fine. Let's make them better men and, you know, get them ready for the real world. Final question. What do you think makes you a good coach versus, like, you as a player? What do you think the difference is and why do you think you're a good coach? Um, you know, I think it's passion, um, competitiveness. Uh, caring, you know, empathy, obviously, for, for these kids and, um, you know, wanting to understand where they come from and want to understand where they want to go, um, you know, but just showing them that I'm investing in them and caring about them. I think that that's, that goes hand in hand with a player and a coach. If, if your players care about each other, you're going to win. Um, if your coach, you know, has that leadership quality where they care about the players, I think the players will, will follow that. Um, so I think, I think that's what I bring to the table. I hope. I know I said that was the last question, but I have one more actually. Was there ever a coach back when you were in high school or like whatever that really stuck with you? I know we said like a mantra or something, but I'm talking about a person this time. Someone that you really want to model your coaching after or someone that really made an impact on you. Um, you know, I was very, very fortunate. I had a lot of, um, great mentors. Um, you know, I was always told to, you know, kind of keep your circle small, um, you know, so obviously family was in that circle, um, a guy that, you know, trained me my first year of pro ball all the way until today, um, his name's Ed Smith back home, you know, he's been my, like, go-to, um, you know, spiritual leader, he's just accountability partner, um, everything to me, um, you know, but that's outside of baseball. Um, when I got drafted, there was a guy named Chino Cadahia who's with the Royals now, um, you know, he kind of was always there for me. He, he let me know that, you know, hey, you're a first rounder, you got paid a lot of money, but I don't care. You know, we're going to make you a big league player. Um, you know, so I always kept close with him. You know, my A-ball coach, Randy Engel, uh, was a huge part of that as well. Um, you know, because I was still like the, the prospect, you know, so not a lot of guys accepted me. They gave me crap, like, oh, you're a baby, bonus baby, and this and that. Um, but he always, you know, treated me fairly as a, as a human, as a man. And at that time, I was getting married, um, having our first kid. So we got married on an off day in the middle of the season. So, you know, all my coaches came, my teammates came. Um, it was just a small little thing. Um, you know, Franklin Stubbs was another uh, hitting coach at that time, too. It was very, very help, helpful in, you know, my relationship with my wife. You know, he told me, hey, I don't care what happens, you know, before you leave this field, you need to check in with me and, you know, give me a nod if you're good. And if you're not, sit down and we're going to hash it out. And you're not going to take anything that you did here at the field home with you. It's not fair to them. So um, that's something that has stuck with me from, you know, 2005 until now. Are you spiritual? Yeah. Yes. Very religious. 
Yep. What do you mean? Like, what? How does that kind of carry through your life? Um, you know, I understand that you know we're here for a purpose. You know, God created us for a reason. You know, and we don't know exactly what that reason is until the end. But um, you know, I feel like He gave me the gift of playing this game and putting me at the highest. I mean, the year before I got traded to the Red Sox, I was ready to quit, go home, become a cop or a teacher. And, you know, my, I had thoracic outlet syndrome, so I had surgery. Uh, it was just a really, really bad year, so I was ready to just call it quits. I'm like, I'm never going to get back to the big leagues. You know, I'm just going to retire and go home and be a dad. And, um, you know, for whatever reason that didn't happen, next thing you know, I'm getting, you know, trade deadline goes by. I'm like, all right, that's it. And then 15 minutes later, I'm in the cages. They call me in the office and say, hey, we traded you to the Red Sox. Like, I mean, it could have been anywhere. And they traded me the Red Sox where I'm, you know, a starting catcher and Barry takes my back up. And, you know, I go on to win a World Series, sign a long-term deal. Um, so I knew that he had done that for a reason. So I used that to come home, help kids get better and, and achieve their goal, but be, you know, better men in society. Um, you know, and trying to do the same thing with the college kids. What kind of teacher would you want to be? I mean, I was... I wasn't shooting very high. I was going to be a gym teacher, and, you know, I was going to be a gym teacher and a high school coach. I figure that's you know fair enough and you know easy. Um, you know, I don't know where my life would have went if I had done that. You know, but I'm I'm glad it ended up the way it did, and I'm able to kind of help more people and and be a little more productive. It's like a full circle almost, Absolutely. minus the gym teacher part. You got to right. be your high school coach. Yeah, exactly. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much for the time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. And that does it for today's episode of the podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe. Once again, thank you again to Jared Saltalamakia for taking the time. I'm your host, Isabella Gescos, and I'll catch you later.